I asked Chad to, to stay up there. There's just something about men singing for Christ. No offense, ladies. I love you just as much. But when men are singing for Christ, oh, man, i got to control myself. Where's Colby? I might have to pound this pulpit, Delaney. I appreciate you staying with me, Chad. Oh. Is it just me or men? Do you feel the same? If you take your Bibles and open them to 1 John chapter 5, the title of today's message is The Testimony of the Spirit. Now, Webster's Dictionary defines the word neglect as to give little attention or respect to, especially through carelessness. Now, I'm sure we all could give numerous examples of where we've left things unattended or, unfortunately, not given the respect that it's due or operated with a careless attitude. I've mentioned this before, but many of you might recall where I came within inches of a serious injury because of my neglect of a chainsaw. Not a good instrument to neglect or to treat carelessly. On a lesser scale, what about the tires on our vehicles? This is one where, once again, I've failed miserably often and paid the consequences of that, literally speaking. We all know the results if you don't rotate your tires on a timely basis. I'm sure the tire sellers appreciate my neglect. My wallet surely doesn't, as I have to pay for new tires more often than what I should. What about some of our students here today? You know what happens when you neglect what's required of you to excel in your studies. You know, I've always got to have a sports illustration in there. Sorry. But what about the athlete who neglects his preseason form? What does that produce for him? In most cases, missed opportunities. In other cases, unfortunately, probably even more discouraging, maybe injury. Because he neglected his body to prepare. For the upcoming season. Let's turn these examples around by way of a question. What is an area of Christian doctrine and practice that's often neglected? Now, there could be many suitable answers to that question. Now, let me offer one. What about the neglect of the power of the Holy Spirit. We discussed that way back on Pentecost Sunday, did we not? And that message, the power of the Spirit. Unfortunately, some abuse this practice and doctrine. Others neglect it. 
Paul Washer, pastor and founder of Heart Cry Missionary Society, stated the following, and I quote, You and I always stand in great need of the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. The working of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we should constantly be crying out to God for greater and greater infusions of His power. And greater and greater outpourings of the Spirit. Moreover, how is this neglect affecting the church? I would argue in many respects, unfortunately, it's affecting her confidence. Without a proper perspective concerning the Spirit of God, the Christian can inevitably struggle with confidence or assurance. We know why John wrote this letter. We've mentioned it several times, chapter 5, verse 13, which we'll examine in more detail next week. I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, not only does this neglect of the Spirit contribute to a lack of confidence, it also contributes to a lack of courage. Washer went on to say the following in that same message, and I quote, All our gifts, all our power, all our eloquence, all our strategies cannot achieve anything in what has to be done in this world. But the Holy Spirit can. The power of the Holy Spirit We want to be men and women of courage. Not only does this affect our outlook in regards to assurance, but it affects us in many areas of Christian practice. Following the context of chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, John wrote to further strengthen this fruit of conversion that we discussed last week. In verses 6 through 12, Our passage here this morning, he writes to empower these churches with one simple theme. The Spirit of God vindicates the believer's conversion and hope. A powerful theme for the original audience and for us here today and will continue to be until the Lord returns. And we see our confidence clearly on display. This morning we'll look at three actions from the Spirit which accomplish this. Actions that will answer our question this morning. How does the Holy Spirit empower our assurance and our hope? By the power of the Spirit. We even have men and women praying right now. And I pray now as well. That this passage will serve to infuse you with confidence and courage. And protect us 
from not neglecting the Spirit of God who indwells us, brothers and sisters in Christ. Would you stand, please? For the reading of God's Word, 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This word is God-breathed. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, The spirit and the water and the blood and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Thanks be to God for this precious word. You may be seated. The first action of the Spirit, and we'll see in verses 6 through 9, is number one, he confirms his testimony. He confirms his testimony. Now, over the years, there's certainly been some ambiguity surrounding, in this passage, these two words, water and blood. The common consensus is that John was communicating something to the original audience that would have been clearly understood in that context. That said, the truth is not as clear for us. Nevertheless, amongst many conservative commentators, the argument is made, and we'll show why, that John was referring to the baptism of Christ and his crucifixion in reference to the water And the blood. In the original language, Jesus came, it says, one who came in water and in blood. It was his baptism and crucifixion that served, in essence, as bookends for his official, authoritative ministry on earth. Now, one clue. For this argumentation relates to the original Gnostic threat 
that are, we are more than familiar with. One aspect of that threat that stemmed from a heretical teaching by the name of dualism, which permeated throughout Gnosticism. What is dualism? It's the belief that all reality consists of matter, which is evil, and spirit, which is good, excluding even in its actual foundational standpoint, God. Although the Gnostics tried to insert God into this belief. For example, some of these detractors argued that the Spirit descended on the man, Jesus Christ, at his baptism, yet was removed from him before the crucifixion. This claim was made in order to preserve the goodness of the Spirit apart from the evil inflicted on his body. This is that dualism coming to play and why many do believe, and I would concur, that this is what John is referencing. And, and why is that the case from the Word of God in context with the original environment? Look again at the middle of verse 6 concerning what would have been John's response to this faulty view. He says, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. Now, whether it's the first century or the 21st century, the historicity or the nature of Christ has and will always be attacked. As John's previously expressed, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Now, as for believers, we understand and fully relish and rest in the reality that we will never fall away from Christ. Nothing shall snatch us from his hand. However, certainly attacks such as these, whether it be in the first century and the churches of Asia Minor, and many similar type of attacks against our assurance, against our hope that transpire in our culture, can at times discourage a believer or shake his confidence in what he believes to be true. Notwithstanding, how do we remain firm? How does the Holy Spirit empower our assurance and hope? Look at the end of verse 6. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Now, the historicity of Christ, which confirms his nature and who he is in and of itself, is enough. The Spirit is the truth. Although, what do we have today 
even as another confidence, something that's even more tangible for us. In the same way that John's audience gained assurance, we experience the very same thing. And John writes in the present tense here concerning the Spirit who testifies. We've seen this throughout this letter in chapter 2, verse 20, chapter 2, verse 27, 324, chapter 4, verse 13. All throughout, the Spirit confirms His word through the anointing and illumination. This is critical for us to understand. He peppers the Spirit throughout in order that they might know that they have eternal life. And then here in this passage drives the point home even clearer. Think of it from this perspective. There are people in our lives in whom we trust their word as bond. I don't even know if that's a saying anymore. It was back in my day. Can you say that? Your word is bond? You understand what that means. You wholeheartedly trust these people. Why is that? These are people that over time have proven their worth. They've shown forth their faithful and true character. That said, in the Spirit, what do we have? Once again, the verse indicates the Spirit is the truth. And the same way that Christ identifies himself with truth. John 14, 6. And he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The co-equal third person of the Trinity is just as much the embodiment of truth as well. Along with being the essence of truth. He confirms his testimony of truth additionally. In John's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 13 through 14, we read, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Let me paint another picture. And this one is somewhat near and dear to my heart for personal experience. Within many schools, some of you that are teachers will know where I'm going with this, there are certain students that are granted what's called an IEP, an Individualized Education Program. These are students that need some extra assistance in completing assignments or tests. As a means of this support, they're often given a helper or a tutor. Imagine being a student such as this and not just having a helper, 
but having the actual creator and author of the assignment with you. This is, in essence, what we as believers have in the Spirit. We could call it a divine IEP. We might call it an illumination educational program. We need a helper who can shine meaning on the assignment. We need a helper who can empower our understanding of assurance and hope in Christ. And you know what? The author, the creator of the assignment, if you are in Christ, indwells within you. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, many of you will know the passage. Peter states, so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and a morning star arises in your heart. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God breathed. And he indwells within you. The author and creator of the word that we so cherish. What's more, not only does the author confirm his testimony as true, he demonstrates its unity with history along with his previous revealed truths of Scripture. Look again at verses 7 and 8. But there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Now, just as I previously stated, there is no doubt beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Spirit in and of Himself is enough. He is the truth. What else do we need? All that to say, though, John, under inspiration of the Spirit, desires to confirm this testimony even more. He appeals to the Spirit's own previous testimony concerning witnesses and truth. Something that would have been more than understood within the original audience. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 6 reads, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. More to cite a New Testament passage, which was written before this letter, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, 
within biblical accounts, these types of charges usually center, as we just read, upon the witness of two or three persons. This is what the word requires to even consider reliability. However, when it comes to Christ, we also have record of his works serving as a witness to who he is. For example, in John chapter 10, the gospel, verse 25, we read, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. So what's the connection? What's the point? In verse 8, and in perfect harmony, we have the Spirit and the historical actions of the baptism and the crucifixion, each combining to confirm the divine, certain, and reliable testimony of Scripture. Three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. What's more? Looking at the end of verse 8, the three are in agreement. Of course, this only serves to perfectly connect and correlate with the divine testimony of Scripture and the nature of the God in whom we serve. Even within the Godhead, we see in John chapter 16 and 17, There's always been and will only be unity amongst the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. What else would we expect concerning the confirmation of his testimony? The Spirit is the truth. He authored the truth. And history continually and repeatedly testifies to this. So, how does this empower us and our assurance and hope? In many respects, I think it's important for us to remember that the world does not have the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 5, John states, They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world. Beloved, don't be surprised when the attacks come upon your assurance, upon your hope, upon your confidence. At times, they'll come from the world. At times, they'll come from the God of this world. And other times, they'll actually stem from ourselves. And this is the one that I believe is far more important for us to be concerned about. In my experience, the lack of assurance and hope Courage, even for myself, more often than not, comes from the neglect of the power of the Spirit that indwells each and every one of us as believers. Don't forget, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Remember, 
You've been given a divine IEP. Direct access to the author and creator of the assignment. One of my favorite passages of scripture is Isaiah 46.10. Fits perfectly with this comment. This author, this creator in whom we connect, relate, pray, and work with knows the answers of the assignment from the beginning to the end. That's where Isaiah 46.10 comes into play. Cling to him and his power as you apply yourself daily to rightly divide the truth of Scripture. Is his assignment just a task for us to check a box? Or we do, do we desire to prayerfully connect with the divine tutor and helper? Take comfort. Be encouraged. He's confirmed his testimony, a testimony that will always point you to Christ. What's more? It's a testimony that's greater than men. Look at verse 9 as we wrap up this first action. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. Similar to the end of chapter 4, John, once again, uses an argument from the lesser to the greater. He previously referenced, as by way of illustration, a person in whom we trust. That said, no matter how much integrity these people have in whom we love and whom we trust, they'll inevitably let you down. We know this. Unfortunately, even amongst husbands and wives. And yet, why is it at times that as believers, we so disproportionately crave encouragement and assurance from men? Don't get me wrong, by all means... Seek to give encouragement. And there's nothing wrong with receiving encouragement. But beloved, does that sustain us? Because even the ones we love and trust let us down at times. The testimony of God is so much greater than the testimony of men. I love Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll paraphrase, but in essence he states that I'm not concerned about what you think about me. My desire is to be found a servant of God and a steward of the mysteries of God and to be found trustworthy. 
For it is God who examines me. Listen to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 18 for another example of this testimony of God, which is greater than the testimony of men. One in which will serve to keep us from neglecting the power of the Spirit. The writer states, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. And yet men, unfortunately, are changeable. He goes on to state, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible For God to lie. We who take refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. We serve a God. And we hear the confirmation of the testimony of the Spirit which speaks to the unchangeableness of the God in whom we serve. A God for whom it is impossible for him to lie. Not to mention, even with our trustworthy friends, some days are better than others for us all. In contrast, John confirms the perfect testimony of God. Past, present, and future. Not about some days are better than others. It's a perfect testimony. God has always confirmed his testimony, confirming the Son in history, while the Spirit, now and into the future, continues to do the same for you. In a similar manner, The writer of Hebrews proclaims Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the testimony that we crave, that we cling to, that will sustain us. Compare this unified, eternal, and divine confirmation of testimony to that of men. This is what we have in the triune God. God the Father chose you while you were in your mother's womb even before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ the Son bled and died on the cross while you were an enemy for you. Believer. And the Spirit now, the one who drew you when you were an enemy, continues to confirm his testimony to you. 
united, divine, certain, reliable, true testimony. Which drives our courage, which drives our confidence, which drives our assurance and our hope. His confirmation of his testimony is one thing. It's clearly empowering. Notwithstanding, there's a personalizing action that the Spirit imparts, which only intensifies our assurance and hope. And that's number two. He seals his testimony. We see this in verse 10. Look at verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. Now, the primary emphasis in this verse is the testimony the believer has in himself. That said... Let me briefly address the contradiction of faith in the unbeliever that we see here. The one who does not believe in God, who in essence is making God out to be a liar, the author of truth, the one who is the truth. The sense of the verb communicates a past and ongoing Rejection. Apart from the Spirit's work, this is the state of the depraved heart. In the face of truth, he chooses what his heart and soul desires. We understand this fully, apart from grace in our previous lives. Not to mention he attributes falsehood to what is clearly revealed and known to be true. Nevertheless, what about you, dear brother and sister in Christ? Thanks be to God that the Spirit opened your blind eyes of rejection. And transformed what your heart and soul desired. Even so, how is the sealing of the testimony in yourself empowering your assurance and hope? Listen to Jesus' words from John chapter 14, verses 16 through 18. He states, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive. Because it does not see him or know him. But you, brother, sister in Christ, my addition. You know him. Because he abides with you and will be in you. 
And he goes on to say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What is the opposite of an orphan? But a child who personally and intimately understands the witness of adoption. Back around Christmas time, we referenced Galatians chapter 4 and we preached a sermon from there. Paul said it as such, Galatians 4, verse 6 through 7, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And whether it's the internal or personalized picture from the heart in Galatians 4, or the testimony in himself that John discusses here in verse 10, it's the Spirit that seals this testimony deep within your every being. Is there a sense of internal subjective sealing or witness? Of course there is. However, it's critical for us to fully understand the subjective never contradicts the objective. Think of it from this perspective. When we're sick, we don't seek for a feeling of healing first. It's the medicine that produces the healing. And then the feelings that transpire subsequently. Friends, don't neglect the objective power and testimony of the Spirit. I promise you, it's that objective power of his illumination educational program. You want to stay with that. That will intensify and magnify your internal subjective witness. A feeling of assurance, a feeling of confidence, a feeling of courage, a feeling of hope, Chad and I were even discussing earlier a video that I watched this morning. And that video certainly created tremendous feeling of excitement and encouragement and courage within me to come here and minister the word of God to you. It was a feeling. There's nothing wrong with feelings. But they cannot contradict the objective standard of the word of God. Amen. 
It's a feeling that knows with all of one's heart that what God began in me, He will bring to completion. Philippians 1.6 It's this sealing and this feeling that flows forth from what God reveals through His objective word by illumining these truths. Moreover, it's a feeling that beams in all its radiance in hope in what the Spirit reveals. And that's our third and final action of the Spirit. Number three, He reveals His testimony. Look at verses 11 and 12. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. First off, concerning this glorious testimony let us not forget the previous assurance and hope that we've seen throughout this passage it's unified it's divine it's true it supersedes beyond reason any testimony of men the spirit himself confirms it and then seals it deep within every ounce and fiber of our soul First, objectively, through the illumination of his word. Secondly, through the internal and subjective response of the Christian's heart. And then, what has he revealed about the nature and history of Christ? Apart from that, what has he revealed apart from that? The verse states that God has given us eternal life. What a glorious, comforting, and assuring hope. In John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, we hear this magnificent display of assurance and hope that every believer clings to and understands. Jesus said, my sheep Hear my voice, and I know them, and they will follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Thanks be to God that those in whom the Son has called will be glorified. Romans 8, 29 and 30 in the golden chain of redemption. Thanks be to God that we are eternally secure in Christ. Nothing can ever separate us from his love. Because of this glorious and certain and reliable and true testimony 
rest and assurance. Live with hope and then run with courage. This is what God is calling of us. As for those of us who have the Spirit, and as the word states, have life, I have three closing points of application for you, dear brother, dear friend, dear sister in Christ. Number one, never forget, as we've seen throughout, salvation is a gift from God. God has given us eternal life. We love because he first loved us. Why is this so important when it comes to application? And I've said this time and time again, and I have to repeat it to myself, so therefore I want to repeat it to you because it drives us to greater depths of humility and grace. Let he who boasts, boast in the Lord. Similar to our message on conversion, in light of this, would we surrender our lives daily to Christ? Of course we surrendered at the point of our conversion by the grace of God. But yet he's calling us still even more to surrender daily. What are we holding on to? In which the Spirit perhaps is revealing to us according to his objective word. Number two, this eternal life is only found in Christ alone. course, those of us that have been bought by the blood of Christ understand this from a salvation standpoint. Salvation is only through Christ alone. However, is this what our life reflects? Is Christ the filter through which we operate through which we make decisions. And one more, number three. Eternal life is not just our future. Oh, it's a wonderful future. As we read in our call to worship. We can never be too heavenly minded. Don't let anyone ever tell you to the contrary. Why is that? Because it affects our life today just as much. And given our current circumstances and our current culture, whether it be here in these states or on the other side of the globe, we need a good perspective. Amen? Because this world's a mess. And if we're not careful, we become discouraged. 
And we begin to lose hope as we see utter depravity surrounding us. War. The loss of life. The celebration of homosexuality or transgenderism. Whatever it may be, it can be discouraging. But oh brother, sister in Christ. Live for eternity in a way that demonstrates your joy, your assurance, and your hope even for today. Amen? This is not our home. I don't want to break it. There was even a moment, precious moment, several days ago where the reality of that was just seeping and, and washing over me. Which was a great encouragement, a great hope, a great confidence, and a great courage for me to have a smile on my face. To want to love you, my brother, and love you, my sister. To share the gospel with those in whom are in dire and desperate need of it. That being said, how could I not end a message in this passage without repeating the end of verse 12? He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. If there are any unconverted under the sound of my voice today or perhaps even into the future by way of our streaming. Friend, you know you're sick. You're sick with a disease of sin, a disease that will one day end your life. And begin a new one. A new one of conscious, eternal torment in hell. And yet, if you turn from sin and receive the Son of God by faith alone, by Christ alone, you will have eternal life with Christ. And you will have a spirit that confirms and that seals and that reveals his testimony personally and intimately to you. Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Bow with me in prayer. Holy Spirit, we come before you today in repentance. For in many ways we grieve you. But Holy Spirit, we also know that you have shined your light upon the truth of Scripture. Scripture. 
which resonates within our soul, that there is therefore no condemnation for us. Holy Spirit, would you empower us to hide within our hearts the word of God in which you breathe forth? Would you create in us, Holy Spirit, a passion and a desire to manifest a life that exhibits the fruit of the Spirit? A heart, a concern, and a passion for those who are lost. And a love and compassion for the body of Christ. The body in which you shed your precious blood for. In the mighty and precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ we pray.